Stanford University. It's entirely appropriate that today's speaker, Jim March, who has chosen to focus his remarks on his role as a teacher, be introduced by one of his former students. And that person is another distinguished member of our group, Ed Feigenbaum, Kumagai Professor Emeritus in the Department of Computer Science in the School of Engineering. That someone whose career took him in the direction of computer science should have studied long ago from someone who is a social scientist tells us something about the broad range of interests of both people, the introducer as well as the introduced. So I'm happy to turn the lectern and mic over to Ed. Uh, thanks, David. <clears throat> when I received the announcement of this talk, I immediately uh, wrote to David to ask if I could introduce Jim. Uh, Jim's title for his talk today is Occupation Teacher, but for me, as a sophomore in college in 1953, his occupation was my teacher. Uh, I would not, honestly, I would not be here this afternoon as a professor emeritus and scientific research person had it not been for the intellectual excitement and guidance and general tender loving care that I got from Jim when I was an undergraduate. So let me tell you the story of how Jim changed my life with extreme brevity enforced by David. In 1952, 1952, that's a long time ago. Uh, in fact, I think if, um, if Jane March were in the room, she'd be the only person in the room who knew Jim longer than I, than I did. I entered Carnegie Tech, now Carnegie Mellon University, as an electrical engineering student. I aced my first year, but at the end of all of those uh, intro to engineering courses, I asked myself, is this really a college education? Is this all there is? I had a suspicion there was a wider world out there somewhere. My advisor gave me permission to add any courses I wanted from around the institution. I studied the catalog and decided on a course in a school whose existence I had not even known about, the Graduate School of Industrial Administration. Fall 1953, course, Ideas and Social Change, Instructor, March. Jim had recently arrived as an instructor from his graduate work at Yale and I think, I'm not sure, this was his first course at Carnegie Tech since it was in the fall and, and he had just arrived. I hadn't noticed that this was a graduate school course. You know, here I am, just a first term sophomore. But the first class session was an unforgettable electric experience. What did Jim talk about? The mathematical theory of games and the possible implications for models of social behavior. What was the assignment for next class? Read von Neumann and Morgenstern's theory of games and economic behavior. It was a mind-expanding experience. So this was the world of ideas. And behavioral science was where it was at. 
Subsequently, Jim arranged a summer assistantship for me, uh, helping him conduct an experiment on small group decision making. It involved the group rank ordering of a set of pictures of beautiful young girls, most beautiful to least beautiful. That's how I learned about beautiful girls. <laughs> and it led to my first published paper with Jim entitled, now get this, I'm a computer science professor, right? Latent motives, group discussion, and the quote, quality unquote, of group decisions in a non-objective decision problem. Also, unforgettably, as I ran those experiments for Jim in a basement room at the school, sitting in the next room down the hall were Jim, Herbert Simon, and Harold Getzgau working long hours on a book that became the classic March Simon book organizations. Jim introduced me to Herb Simon, and in another one of my many deviations from the engineering curriculum, I took Simon's seminar about mathematical models in the social sciences, at which Simon introduced to us the ideas that were and are the big bang ideas of the newly born field of artificial intelligence. That's the field I later, later uh, ended up working in. Jim's influence continued. The model of organizational decision-making in the March and Simon book and the technology involved in the early artificial intelligence experiments were made for each other. It's like twins with the same DNA. Coupled with the microeconomic insights from Jim's colleague and my then microeconomics teacher, Richard Seyert, there came into being the first model in the March Seyert behavioral theory of the firm. This research ran for many years and led to many papers and a book. The first of those papers was accepted by the 1958 annual meeting of the American Economic Association and Dick and Jim invited me to deliver the paper. That was my first professional society conference presentation. Jim March, as a beneficent manifestation of the legendary Pied Piper, has piped to professorship several generations of students who have a deep affection for him, as I do. Now, what else has Jim March done in his extraordinary career? In 1965, he moved, reluctantly, I think, from Carnegie Mellon to the University of California at Irvine, where a new school of social science was being organized, with Jim as its founding dean and intellectual architect, and interdisciplinary research and teaching as its soul. From UC Irvine, in 1970, he moved to Stanford, but where does one put an interdisciplinary scholar like Jim? Well, it turns out over the years, in the School of Education, in the Graduate School of Business, and in the Political Science and Sociology departments. Oh, and I forgot to tell you that at Carnegie Mellon, one of his professional appointments was in psychology. Jim's written contributions include 26 books. Here is just a sample of a flavor for those topics, since I can't tell you all 26. Organizations with Simon, famous book. 
Behavioral Theory of the Firm with Dick Seyert, another famous book. The Handbook of Organizations. Mathematics for the Social and Behavioral Sciences, Probability, Calculus, and Statistics with Gelbaum. Introduction to Models in the Social Sciences with Lave. Several books dealing with ambiguity in organizational decision-making. And his latest, uh, to be published later in 2010, The Ambiguities of Experience, which I've put on my must-read list. Some of you may have seen one or both of his remarkable recent movies, movies that he wrote and narrated. They discuss leadership in which Jim links his insights to classic literature, specifically Don Quixote and War and Peace. And by the way, did you know he's published eight volumes of poetry? Among his many honors, Jim is a member of the National Academy of Sciences the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the National Academy of Education, and the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences. To the point of this lecture today, he has won many awards for teaching. But of course, you would have guessed that from my story. Thanks, Jim. Come tell us about your occupation, teaching. I had a very wise father, and he said a couple things that are relevant here. One is that one does not have to believe flattery in order to enjoy it. <laughs> Thank you, Ed. Uh, I had a feeling I had suddenly and, in, and inexplicably wandered into my funeral. The other thing that my father said was that you have two choices in life. You can keep your mouth shut and have people think you are a fool, or you can open your mouth and prove it. <laughs> I, thinking about him, I think the best thing I can do is sit down, but like any college professor. I give me a platform and I'll pontificate. So the uh, there are some intellectual reasons for hesitating about this assignment that David Abernethy has invented. I belong to a clan that believes that writing intellectual history consistently exaggerates the role of individuals as part of a general intent, uh, inclination to exaggerate human importance in life. Uh, all scholarship is collective, not individual, and so if you tell an individual story about intellectual development, you're falsifying it. The, uh, and that history characteristically exaggerates the idiosyncratic features of an individual, his or her family, or his or her career, and things of that. Uh, I find it very charming, uh, although I confess that I was once asked by a publisher if I would write a blurb 
for an autobiography written by one of my friends, a man whom I have enormous admiration. And I said I would read anything that he wrote with pleasure and interest, but the idea of an autobiography makes me vomit. <laughs> the publisher did not ask me to put that on the back, but the, uh, it's also, this assignment is a little hard on a personal level. The, uh, it asked me to remember things. And I, uh, David will uh, appreciate this. A, a few weeks ago, I tried desperately to remember the name of a man who was one of my teachers and later for a long time one of my colleagues, and I couldn't do it. Gabriel Almond, of all things. So if I can't remember Gabriel Allman's name, how the hell am I going to remember anything? Well, having disqualified myself thoroughly, what I intend to do is to say a few things about my life and career, then some observations on the times, some observations on the institutions that I was, with which I was involved, some observations on teaching and writing, and some lessons that I might allege I'd learn. The basic message, however, is a message that's more or less a response to the standard cocktail party question. What do you do? I, around here, it's what's your major? And, you know, that was never a difficult question for me, but what do you do? Uh, when I was asked that after a while at cocktail parties, I said, what are you, basically? I said, I'm a father. Because I thought two things. I thought that probably was a more accurate characterization than anything else I could say. But even more, it got you off this nasty talk about what are you working on? What's your pub what are you publishing? What are you thinking about? All of which is junk. But in this case, if you ask, what am I? I say I am a teacher. That's what I believe in a career sense I have been all my life. I believe my writings are basically teaching writings and that my teaching is basically an integral part of my research. So a few things about life and career. The conventions of talking about your life and career are to explain how it is shaped by your family, your early experiences, the early influences that you've had. Uh, your career is produced by a series of crises and choices dictated by crises. Um, and when I listen to some of my, my neighbors, I now live at the Sequoias, this marvelous collection of people, some of whom are here, as a matter of fact. Uh, I'm awed by the extent to which their lives are filled with uh, hardship, with horrors, with dilemmas, with crises. Uh, I find that very impressive, but it ain't true of me. The, uh, I'm reminded of Winston Churchill's comment about Clement Attlee. 
Winston Churchill said about Clement Attlee, Mr. Attlee has, is so modest, and he has so much to be modest about. <laughs> um, it's a comment that my father would have tried to turn around and say, Mr. Churchill, you could use a little. <laughs> my life was fundamentally uneventful. Conventional. I grew up in a standard middle-class family in a standard Midwestern community. I married my childhood sweetheart and stayed married to her now for 62 years. We started quite poor, lived frugally, gradually became economically secure. I mostly did what was expected and appropriate in a timely way. There were no surprises. I don't think I would be of any interest to a psychoanalytic expert. I am not a product of inner angst or personal crises. I'm not a product of overcoming major obstacles. I'm not driven by any great ambition or transcendent vision. I am not a good subject for a biography, thank God. Uh, Ed mentioned that I occasionally publish things that I think are, well, I, no, I'm not sure I think they are, but I claim they're poetry. Uh, in 1974, I wrote a little poem and said, part of it, I am the white son of conventional parents and watch television in a house in the suburbs with my wife and children. If I were a play, I would have closed in New Haven. <laughs> so, that's it. I should sit down. The, uh, now, I have been successful. Uh, my grandmother would have said, with, or what is that line? Uh, Behind every man is a great woman and an incredulous grandmother, or mother-in-law. Uh, um, I have persistently achieved more than expected and more than deserved. I've had some grand disappointments, mostly connected to uh, history or society or institutions, even about the scholarly world, but very few personal disappointments. My life is determined largely by four critical decisions that I made very early in life. Well, let me, let me, I'm sorry, I got the pages mixed up a little bit. And I have to follow the notes because how the hell could I remember what I'm going to say? Um, I was a relatively early achiever, but not extraordinarily early. I finished high school at 17, which is a little earlier than the average, but certainly not unusual. Uh, I went to the Army for 18 months and then finished college. I was 21 when I finished college. I married when I was 19. I had four children by the time I was 28. I got my PhD by 25. I got tenure by 29 and full professor by 33. I was a dean by 36 and I was elected to the National Academy of Sciences by 46. That's 
young, but it's not extraordinarily young. Uh, I have a variety of awards, most of them produced by the efforts of my good friends, uh, so that uh, they deserve them more than I do. The things came easy. They did not require exceptional ambition or induce exceptional anxiety, at least that I recall. I had reasonable intelligence, I had good work habits, I had a good partner, and we organized life in a good way. I, I should explain how we organized life. Jane, my wife, has absolutely no interest whatsoever in my work. <laughs> to the best of my knowledge, she has never read more than a paragraph or two of all of the things that I've written, except poetry, she reads that. She, I think, believes that my job keeps me employed, provides a certain amount of income, and keeps me out of trouble. But she does not view it as having anything to do with her life and indeed mine. It's, and that has been a marvelous situation. I have never exchanged a single word about scholarly matters with Jane. Perfect. Well, if you're very successful and you get, you know, you don't, there are never any crises and everything happens and you've got this wonderful wife who doesn't pay any attention whatsoever to what's going on in the world, in your world, uh, you are very vulnerable to superstitious learning. You come to believe that you understand the world. And so oftentimes I am tempted to give advice to students about how to manage their careers, but I have learned to keep my mouth shut. I know that my colleagues will provide lots of advice about how to get ahead in the world, and the advice will be lousy, but fortunately they give quite different advice, different ones say different things, and the students somehow manage to go on their way. Uh, basically, I went to school when I was five years old, discovered I liked it, and I stayed. That's the whole history. The career is based primarily on four decisions, or four things, I guess. First, there are four decisions that I made very early in my life that have served me very well. The first was who my parents would be. <laughs> I chose parents very well. The second was the year of my birth. I chose the year of my birth very well. And the third was my gender. I chose my gender very well. Once I had made those decisions, everything else was taken care of. So. Aside from those decisions, the things that have mattered, the times. I lived in a particular time, and I related to it in a particular way. I was too young to become a communist and too old to become a flower child. I was fit right in that spot where my older friends all became communists, my younger friends all became flower children. I went on gloriously being neither. 
the institutions that I associated myself, mostly by chance, included two messianic upstarts with strong notions of what proper research is and how you ought to behave. But primarily the teaching and writing. I've been blessed with exceptional students and exceptional audiences. And I've been blessed with the opportunity to devote time in talking about interesting intellectual questions and get paid for it. I've spent hours drinking wine around a table, talking about obscure subjects, and have the society pay me for that. I think that's an extraordinary thing. But the story is not unusual. It's not driven by something. Uh, post hoc, I can provide you with what my goals have always been. But of course, they haven't been. They have evolved over time. If I tell you what my goals have always been, then they are two. One is trying to shape the way we understand organizations. And the other is trying to shape the way individuals bring beauty to their lives. And those things, it turns out I now understand that's what I've been trying to do all the time. But I have no memory of ever having thought anything that grand. I sort of went to work in the morning, did what I was supposed to do, came home at night, did what I was supposed to do, slept, got up in the morning, and so on. Um, so that's the story. The time periods, I think, are interesting. There are I identify five time periods of my life so far. The first is the, is the Depression and the war. My pre-collegiate education coincides exactly with the presidency of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. I am a Roosevelt child. Uh, it coincides with the Depression, the Great Depression. It coincides with the Second World War. It was a time of seriousness, minimal frivolity. Uh, these were accentuated by a father of minimum frivolity. Uh, they are characterized by a school in which I was expected to do well, did well, and liked it. It was a period in which it was taken as obvious that if the society pulled together, it would do better than it would if it did not. That individuals had to be prepared to sacrifice themselves for the good of the group. And that hard work was a virtue. Pretty damn dull by modern standards. But a mindset that was very thorough and very continuous and very much part of my life. I went, let's see if I can get this right. I think I can. I went to junior high school the year that the war in Europe started. I went to high school the year that the uh, American involvement in the war started, and I graduated the year that the war ended. That was not a time 
for frivolity, but of course, I lived in the U.S., where, so that many of the things that my friends who were in Europe at that time experienced did not affect me. All right, that's the first period. Set a, a mindset. Second period, I would say, it was the period from 1945 to about 1965. It's a period of extraordinary post-war optimism. It's the period when I was in college and postgraduate and early career. It was the period when the American empire came to full flower. U.S. hegemony, prosperity, power, extraordinary. It was a time in which there was great confidence in the returns to knowledge. And you could be optimistic about the possibilities for social improvement through exploring knowledge, exploiting the knowledge that you developed. It was a period in which we glorified fundamental knowledge, we glorified mathematics and science, we glorified interdisciplinary knowledge, and we glorified deliberate mindful intelligence, planning, rationality, and things of this sort. And we invested enormous amounts of money in education and research. That time produced a generation of social scientists of which, to which I certainly belong. It was at that time a relatively small group. To an extraordinary extent, they knew each other. They shared attitudes, these attitudes about what's important. They knew each other across disciplines. So the leading economists knew the leading psychologists, knew the leading sociologists. It was a relatively small, relatively tight-knit, relatively committed group to improving social and behavioral sciences, to improving society. You could not have been, I think, in that time without being caught up in it, and I certainly was. Uh, I was part of that gang. And I can drop names if you like, but I knew the, the sort of leaders of that field, even though I was a relatively young part of that field. That period lasted for about 20 years, but then we came to the period of the student protests, the women's movement, the pressure for racial equality, alternative cultures, etc. A turtle, a very powerful turnover. Uh, this is the period when I was a dean, and I I tell my uh, deanly friends they haven't been a dean because they really haven't. Uh, Twice when I was dean, someone came in, put a loaded automatic weapon on my desk and said, what are you going to do for us? Uh, I was administratively responsible for a commune. This was a, well, I was worse than administratively responsible. I probably produced it. Uh, this was at Irvine. 
and we had some imaginative anthropologists who said it's very expensive and almost impossible to take our students down to non other cultures why don't we bring the cultures up here we've got some space uh, what if we invite a Yucatec family up to build a house on the campus and live there sounded like a great idea to me so we did it and it was a great idea it was very good educational and well okay if we can invite a Yucatec family why can't we invite a uh, family from Guatemala okay and we got another house and why can't we invite a Samoan boat builder and why don't we invite a New England boat builder to work alongside the Samoan boat builder and they each build their own boats and they can talk and we did all of those things and we had this wonderful community going and then one day one of the students came in and said well if these families from all over the world can come here and build a house why can't we do you mind if we build a house out there for us a wiser perhaps older person would have hesitated I said oh sure go ahead I was wise enough to produce a, a central uh, facility for washing and toilets since I didn't think the plumbing would be one of the strengths of these people uh, so we had a community we had a commune there maybe 60 to 80 people there living there wonderful people in many ways I got a telephone call one day and said our corn won't grow and I said well I don't think I'm an agronomist but I grew up in Wisconsin I probably know more about it than you do I'll come over so I show me your cornfield it's over there where the chickens are running around uh, that problem I could solve a little later they said our grass won't grow and with all my great success previous success I go over and say well, are you watering oh yes we water it a lot and we fertilize it tell me about it well we had some large animals for medical research quite close by and they were going over and they wanted fresh fertilizer so they were catching the fertilizer as it came and running over and spreading it on the grass so we had a small lecture on the organics of those things uh, it was kind of marvelous the uh, one day I got a telephone call and he said this is major I don't know who major Fisk oh he says I'm older and it doesn't matter to me but some of these young pilots really get upset said, what are you talking about he says you've got on the top of those shacks which are right under our flight path big signs that say fuck the Marines <laughs> so I trot over and I say okay you've made your point let's make it F dash 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 no 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 I never made, made but fortunately the young pilots never came as far as I know I got a call one day from the uh, local beer hall the residents had as was their custom on a Saturday taken a collective shower 
And then, as was their custom, they sort of danced around to get dry. But then, as was not their custom, they decided to dance over to the beer hall and provide the beer hall with their patronage. The beer hall was not pleased. The bodies were naked, but they weren't all that great. <laughs> so, anyway, that, that was being a dean in, the year, in these years of uh, whatever they were. Uh, and, you know, th- this is a period anti-establishment, anti-the political establishment, anti-the cultural establishment, anti-the knowledge establishment. It was anti-generation. It was generational, too. It was activist in resistance, had a disdain for knowledge and scholarship in favor of action. It was mostly Marxist, but mostly without a shared program of reform. This had a deep effect upon social science. It was a challenge to science. All of the postmodernism flowered at once Radical reappraisal of assumptions about culture, about history, about identity, about language. Uh, Deconstruction of history. And the social construction of almost anything. It was a challenge to quantitative methods. Well, for me, this was all fascinating, wonderful, and interesting. Uh, because much of my scholarship was primarily concerned with challenging widely held but possibly erroneous beliefs. One of the greatest books, in my judgment, in social science in this period, earlier period actually, but influencing this period, was William Feller's Introduction to Probability Theory. If you haven't read it, Get it and read it. It's a marvelous book, and it has an extraordinary message. It says, what you think is produced by what you think it is produced could very well have been produced by some kind of Markov process or some kind of stochastic process. Uh, You're probably being fooled by the stochastic nature of life. And that is a theme that has stuck with me throughout, and in a curious way is a theme of deconstruction. It says, life is not what you think it is because it is dominated by these probabilistic processes. So that much of my work has been saying, you think decisions are made this way? Actually, they aren't. They're made this other way. Uh, You think that learning or selection leads to optimal outcomes, it doesn't, or it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily. Uh, you think that innovation and creativity is a product of superior intelligence? No, it's usually a product of ignorance. You think that clear goals, consistency, and coherence are essential to intelligent action? Nonsense. Intelligent action involves inconsistency, ambiguity, etc. So in some sense, although I didn't look like it, I fit in pretty well into that period. Uh, And some of my best friends and so on. 
But that period came to an end. And I don't know exactly where you end, end it. And all these periods, of course, don't end precisely because there's reproduction, scholarly reproduction. Uh, the children of, of people who were deeply influenced by the uh, period of post-war optimism, their products tend to carry that forward quite a long way. But the next period, at least for me, was a period of disillusion, cynicism, pessimism, triumph of the self, and some entrepreneurial marvels. So this roughly 1980 to 1990, there, in that part of the period. Uh, the Cold War, the end of social identification for the most part, pursuit of self-realization. Uh, Postmodern formulations became to many, but not all people, a, a parody of themselves, a joke. Uh, but postmodern cynicisms about modern institutions remain. And you had the excitement of Silicon Valley. So here I found myself, having been gone through these earlier periods, now I'm, I'm teaching. And I find myself in a position of a being one who resists cynicism and resists the enthusiasm about self. Uh, somewhere along the line, I taught a course on friendship. This was actually at Stanford. And I discovered a clear difference between me and most of the students. For most of the students, friendship was an exchange relationship. I expect my friends to do things for me. If you don't do things for me, you're not my friend. I, so there's a trade. Becoming a friend is a trade. For me, friendship was a state. If you are my friend, then I have obligations to you and those obligations have nothing to do with anything you do. Uh, and th that discussion was one of the sources of a lot of uh, concern about the possibility that we are underestimating the, what I call a logic of appropriateness as a basis for behavior and over-utilizing the uh, logic of uh, consequences, where you act in terms of expectation of consequences. The, um, the other thing that came up during that period for me was an emphasis on ambiguity, contradiction, meaning, and storytelling. That life was, was a story, and how that story was constructed and told was fairly important. An emphasis on understanding novelty, and particularly the relation between theories of creativity and theories of delinquency. The short form of that simply says, if you want to understand creativity, go study this, what we know about delinquency. Delinquents are basically creative folks and the way they protect their creativity is by embedding themselves in cultures of deviance, the same way creative people embed themselves in cultures of creativity. Uh, but overall, 
an emphasis on fulfilling a calling rather than pursuing consequences. What I came to call optimism without hope. If optimism depends upon believing that you can make a difference, then you're going to be disappointed. But if you are optimistic as an obligation of your role or your sense of self, then the fact that it doesn't work doesn't matter. And that, of course, I'll come back to that. That uh, turned out to be a central theme. Well, those time periods involved a set of institutions, and I'll try to be fairly brief. Uh, I, in fact, count nine institutions. I went to the University of Wisconsin. Why did I go to the University of Wisconsin? That's fairly simple. It's the only place I could go that I could afford. I lived at home. I lived in Madison. I grew up in Madison. Uh, it was close, it was open, and it was cheap. Now, I got my degree from the University of Wisconsin, but I never really was part of it. Uh, I went there for a year, went off to the Army, came back, went to the school again for a year, and graduated. I never participated in any of I, I did not have a collegiate experience. Uh, I would like to say that I was a GDI, goddamn independent. I didn't belong to any fraternity, but in fact, <laughs> I don't know when I would have belonged. Uh, this was a, um, a community college for me. Uh, now, but the, the university had an impact because I grew up in that city. It had an impact because it communicated a tradition of what the nature of a university was. And Wisconsin had very strong attitudes about what the nature of a university was. I went from there to Yale, do graduate work. Why did I go to Yale? No good reason. Well, no, a perfectly good reason. I applied to Yale, Harvard, and Chicago. They all admitted me, but Yale gave me $800, and Harvard only gave me $500. So $300 was enough. So I went to Yale. But by that time, I was married and had a child, and actually had another one while I was there. Uh, I didn't exactly have a typical collegiate existence there. My, the great good fortune I had at Yale was that the faculty, I was in the Department of Political Science, the department at that time was in turmoil. The senior faculty hated each other, well at least they mostly hated each other, and they were viciously and personally antagonistic. The junior faculty was off hiding trying to avoid the, the flack. So the faculty had no time to interfere with my education. <laughs> and I got a very good education at Yale because of that. They, for example, when, when it came time for me to figure out what to do for a dissertation, I said, I really don't know very much about anthropology, so I think I'll do an anthropology dissertation. Nobody objected, so that's what I did. I went off to the anthropology department, got an anthropologist to, to help me in, into the materials, uh, got a political scientist to sign off on it, 
He did, say, oh, he did say one thing. He said it would be nice if there were an introductory chapter saying what this has to do with political science. <laughs> so, but it was a perfect place. I worked with sociologists, I worked with psychologists, I worked with economists. I uh, read a lot in the library. It was, a, it was a great thing. I got exposed to mathematical social science. Uh, I, and I discovered the joys, the autonomous joys of doing research by yourself. Uh, so that uh, was a good time. The, uh, hey, wait a minute here. Somehow or other, I, I have screwed up my life a little bit. Sorry about that. Uh, well, we'll just skip that. Okay, after Yale, I went, as Ed knows, to the Graduate School of Industrial Administration at Carnegie. Why'd I go there? Well, I went there mostly because Herb Simon came on a very stormy day in New Haven and took me to dinner, which was very nice because poor Jane was in an apartment where the power was out and it was freezing. So Herb took me, but not Jane, to the Taft Hotel, which had power and heat, and hired me. Uh, he says that we had a conversation and he called the dean and said, I just hired somebody. I think that's approximately the way hiring took place in those days. Um, but the, uh, you know, there weren't a lot of options. I could have gone to Chicago probably could have gone to Michigan State. But this seemed very good, so we went off to this place. I didn't know anything about industrial administration. Wasn't sure it existed. So I arrived. Soon after I arrived, I was invited to talk to an alumni group. And I talked to the alumni group, and in the course of my talk, I said a little bit about the, uh, the classical theory of the firm. And amongst other things, I said that, well, in the classical theory of the firm, there's no essential difference between profits and wages. And at equilibrium, profits are zero. Shortly thereafter, I got a telephone call from the president of the university. He said, I've just gotten a letter from one of our senior, one of our most important donors. And he says that you are a raving communist and you should be fired. <laughs> I said, I, well, I don't know. I don't know about the first. I'm not sure about the second. Uh, but it turned out that little talk about the formal theory of the firm was enough to give me an opening bookend to my career, a complaint from the alumni. The, uh, the president uh, thought it was a joke, so he didn't do anything about it. And I didn't know what to do about it, so I didn't do anything about it. GSI at Carnegie Tech was an extraordinary place. These places happen only once in a long time. They are novas. Why they happen, hard to say. But this was an extraordinary place. I think it was the Vienna Circle of its time. Uh, this little school, small faculty, small number of students, 
has produced, up to now, <laughs> six Nobel Prizes in that, in that little group, that little period, 10-year period or so. Uh, four of the faculty have received Nobel laureates, two of the students. Uh, most recent one this year, Ali Williamson. I wrote about it somewhere, I said it was a culture of intense collaboration and competition, immense intellectual arrogance, major messianic inclinations, and an unremitting work ethic. It was all true. The dean used to comment on whose cars were parked at the school on a Sunday. If you weren't there working on a Sunday, you weren't serious. Jane has some very pungent things to say about parties. <laughs> parties were an extension of work. This was not a crew that made idle talk. Well, it may have been idle talk, but it was mostly mathematical economics talk. Uh, Three of the books for which I'm best known were produced at that school in a very short time. While I was there, another institution, I spent a year at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences up on the hill here. Uh, Herb Simon did not like that center. He voted against it in a key group. He did not particularly try to discourage me, but he thought it was a sort of frivolous thing. You should be working hard at home. Uh, the center, in fact, treated us extraordinarily. We weren't very rich at the time, and they decided they had to take us care of us, so they supplemented, subsidized considerably, put us in a wonderful house, the Chattero House in Ladera, uh, and we had our fourth child while we were there. Uh, it was, and the, the group at the center that year was a who's who of social science at that time. Uh, it included economists like Yasha Marshak and Roy Radner and uh, Martin Schubick and Leo Hurwitz. Uh, it included political scientists like Bob Dahl and Vince Ostrom. It included psychologists like Bill Estes and Gardner Lindsay and Leon Festinger. It included sociologists like Seymour Martin Lipset, Jim Coleman, Yuri Bronfenbrenner, Shmuel Eisenstadt, and Alex Inkelis. It included anthropologists like Dave Schneider and uh, was Arthur Krober, I forget. Um, it included people, unidentified people like uh, Ashby, uh, Howard Rafa, Pat Soupies, Merle Curdy. It was an extraordinary group. Uh, the center usually has had good people, but that was a really premier year. Um, while I was there, I wrote a letter to Dick Seyert. I said, this is a great place. Um, and there, people divide themselves into two groups. There are people who do not understand our work and think it is great. And there are people who understand it and don't like it. So I thought we were on the right track. Uh, somewhere while I was there, I made an excursion to Mescalero Apache land uh, with David Schneider and Gardner Lindsay with the thought we might do joint research. Uh, 
But overall, what the big message of that experience was that it was in fact possible, counter to Herb Simon's deep belief, it was in fact possible to live in California and be productive. <laughs> well, after 10 years at GSIA, I moved to, well, actually, I should, when I was at the center, the end of the year, Jane said, I don't know about you, but ultimately I'm going to live here. <laughs> and she said, why not now? Well, I said, Stanford really isn't my cup of tea, and Berkeley really isn't my cup of tea. Uh, so we have to go back to Pittsburgh. And she said, okay, but we're going to live here. Well, the uh, opportunity to come back to California was fairly compelling, but also by, after 10 years, the GSA, and there had been a fair amount of breakdown of GSA. Herb Simon had moved really over to the psych department. Uh, other, Franco Modiani had left. Uh, other good people had left. Uh, so when Irvine asked me to be dean of the School of Social Sciences, I thought, gee, that sounds like fun. Let's do it. Um, one of the issues was, what was I a professor of? Ed raised that. Uh, the, uh, I had letters. You know, University of California requires an enormous file to do anything. But anyway, the, so I had letters from, I think, all of the disciplines. And the uh, vice chancellor said, what are you going to be? Uh, you want to be an economist? Do you want to be an anthropologist? What, what do you want to be? And I, I don't know how, but I said psychology and sociology. So that's what I became for Irvine. We had enormous ambitions for that school. We wanted to make mathematics a basis for the new social science. So we required two years of mathematics for undergraduates in social science. That considerably reduced our enrollments, yeah. but it made it great fun. Uh, we had an interdisciplinary social science. We didn't have disciplinary departments. Julian Feldman, who was a, also a product of uh, GSIA and who came as my associate dean, Julian and I wrote the catalog. What a you know what an exhilarating thing. You sit down and you write the catalog. And then we adopted it <laughs> unanimously. Uh, and that catalog pretty much remained the Burvine catalog for about 10 years. So the two of us created a school, sort of. Uh, for me, there are a couple books that came out of that time. Bernie Gelbaum, who was chair of the math department, and I wrote a book. Mathematics for Social Science, and Charlie Lave, who was an economist, and I wrote a book on models for social science. Uh, the uh, Gelbaum and March book, I think, uh, did not distinguish itself by sales. The Lave and March did, did pretty well. But it was a new time. You know, we had this vision of social science really came out of the previous time, got caught by the protest movements. 
and alternative lifestyles. Uh, at that time, every morning when I came to work, there was on my desk the police report on what the faculty and students had been doing that night. I don't think they do that anymore. But, and I never knew what I was supposed to do with it. Uh, we invited uh, Romulo Betancourt, who was the former president of Venezuela, to speak to an Orange County audience. This produced a certain amount of John Birch Society uh, angst and threats. So I was supposed to introduce him at a, a major center down in, uh, well, I forget what city, Orange probably. And I arrived and I looked, and here were these, looked like thugs, walking with big placards about what was going to happen. So I called the police and, <laughs> wonderful. The man on the other end said, well, how many are there? And I said, well, there are about 10. And they look threatening. And he said, well, seven of them are ours. <laughs> so they were ready. The speech, in fact, went very well. because it was, Although there were hecklers there, he spoke in Spanish. And so the hecklers had to wait for the translation, and all they could heckle was the translator. And it turns out that's a very awkward thing. So Betancourt went over pretty well. Uh, it was a good time. It was a time when uh, students got often fairly anxious about the world, about themselves. And uh, I used to uh, prescribe uh, novels by a Norwegian novelist by the name of Tarje Vesos. Uh, Tarje Vesos is a very somber but uplifting writer. And, and I gave one novel to the women and a different novel to the men, because the one novel dealt with women and one dealt with men. And when that failed, I would take the student home to Jane. Well, Jane's attitude about um, student anxieties is about like her attitude toward my work. Uh, it may, she thinks it may interest them, but it doesn't interest her. So she would say, well, I'm, I'm not going to talk to you. Come out and weed the garden. And they, they, so we came to talk about Jane's weed therapy, which turned out to be better than most other therapies. <laughs> just somebody who says, I'm just not interested in carrying on this conversation. Go get to work. Uh, it, it's, a, uh, it's a Chekhov attitude. You know. The only thing that really works is work. Well, after a while, I went off to Scandinavia for a while, which became very important in my life, and finally ended up at Stanford. Why Stanford? Well, Stanford had at least one obvious major attraction. It was in Palo Alto. It was where Jane was going to live. <laughs> so it wasn't really hard 
in some sense, to make the decision. On the other hand, uh, it took a little thinking about. But Stanford has turned out to be a glorious place. It's an absolutely ideal place for a senior colleague. Probably not for a junior colleague, but for a senior colleague, absolutely perfect. Uh, you can do whatever you want to do in the company of all these wonderful people. That's not very good for collaboration. Uh, my colleagues generally all wanted to do joint, to collaborate. They wanted to cooperate, but they all wanted to do it on their own terms. And second best, clearly, for each of them was going their own way. So uh, it was a little awkward that way. It was also, considering my history, non-messianic. Stanford is many things, but it's not messianic, or it's, it's multiple messianic. Uh, but I came to Stanford, had a, a marvelous organization's research community. Uh, Dick Scott, of course, was the uh, major domo of that community, and it uh, served me very well. Uh, the, uh, it's an, it was, for me, a very fascinating institution. Uh, when I came here, I came here from the University of California, and I, uh, I was trying to manage accounts and in the way that one manages accounts in the University of California. You try to figure out how you can put what you want to do under an account that is legal. And I was doing a certain amount of that, and I got a telephone call from somebody in the accounting office, and he said, what are you trying to do? And I, being an honest fellow, I told him, and he says, why don't you let me do it? I think I know how to do it. Just tell me what you want to accomplish, and we'll take care of it. This was a new world for me, and a different world. Then I met some people from the Stanford Development. I'm not even sure we called it development at that time, but the money raisers. And the extraordinary thing about the Stanford Development, at least at that time, was that they had deeper commitments to academic values than almost anybody else in the university. They would tell a donor who said, I want to give you money, I want you to do this. You would not want to give money to a university that would follow your recommendations. Isn't that a wonderful line? Uh, soon after I came to Stanford, Al Hastorf, known to everybody, I assume, here, uh, called me up, he was then provost, and he said, I haven't asked you to do anything yet, have I? And I said, oh, Jesus, I should hang up. <laughs> uh, but Al asked me to chair a committee to investigate the Department of French and Italian. And, I, you know, we did, and it made some recommendations. They were implemented. In fact, the departments, which is not that anymore, it's, I think, split, uh, is a good department these days. But it was a, a hairy department at that time. But the, the wonderful thing about that was when we got done, Al thanked us, and the next day arrived at my desk a case of French Bordeaux. The University of California did not reward <laughs> things that way. I thought, this is the place to be, uh, and it probably is. The, uh, 
I also got a, later I got a call from Bill Miller, who then was provost. I seemed to talk to provost at that time, at least. And Bill said, I got to talk to you about what we're doing. We are going to measure the productivity of university departments. And I said, ooh, that's nice. How are you going to do that? He said, we're going to compute for every department the number of student credits earned per faculty. That's productivity. And I said, Bill, that sounds very, very good to me. You know, of course, what one obvious consequence of that will be. And he said, no. The average number of units per course will increase. And he said, How do you, what do you mean? And I said, look, consider yourself a department chairman. You want to do well on a scorecard, which is the number of units per faculty member. You could increase that by doing things to get more students in or having teaching more courses and so on. But the easiest, natural way to do it is to take your three-unit courses and make them four-unit courses. That gives you a 33% increase in productivity just by moving your pen. And you take your four-unit courses and make them five-unit courses. And he said, oh, nonsense. Well, that's, of course, what happened. Yeah, I also pointed out that students are not going to complain about this particular way of increasing productivity. So for there was a time when there was not grade inflation, but unit inflation at Stanford, driven by the accounting system. Well, Stanford is an absolutely glorious place. It's a research place. And at least since 1970, it has been a jewel as a research institution. I think it is a deep mistake to think of Stanford as a teaching institution in the sense of an institution designed to provide education to resident students. It is a research institution that does teaching as an ancillary activity. It exists in a world, however, in which universities are justified socially largely in terms of their teaching. So it has to do various things, which mostly are harmless, but not entirely, uh, including evaluation of faculty. Uh, my position is very clear, has been very clear. I think that at a place like Stanford, the only thing that matters for tenure is research productivity that the introduction of attempts to induce teaching evaluations into that process simply produces errors. And there are enough errors without it. But uh, teaching, though, I don't think is central to Stanford, shouldn't be central to Stanford, but it is central to me. And it's clear that that's partly produced by the institutions that I uh, have lived in. Uh, it's different from Harvard or Chicago, which are places I could have gone to at various points. My, the places I've been are different from a state political, state political science department. Uh, they undoubtedly build a substantially different person. Uh, and I, I think that's fairly obvious. But the heart of it for me, has been the teaching and writing. 
almost all, not all, almost all of the rewards I have received have been related to my research. And research is a great pleasure to me. But many of the purest pleasures of my life are associated with teaching and writing. And fundamentally, I think of myself as a teacher. What are the joys of teaching? They are the pleasures of the intellect, first of all. Teaching is an arena for formulating an idea and getting it right. You can engage in serious intellectual talk. I've taught courses on revolutions. I've taught courses called Rules for Killing People, which is on uh, war, murder, suicide, abortion, and all the nice controversial things. I've taught a course, Social Science One at Irvine, which was a introduction to four fundamental models in social science. I've taught courses on decision making, I've taught courses on leadership, and each of those, the course was a, was a center for my research, for my talking about ideas that I think were important. And that goes, were courses that won the uh, Rules for Killing People course, was, basically, was a freshman seminar. So it, it includes talking to freshmen, it includes talking to postdocs and so on. The standard cliche about this is that the way to really understand a concept or idea is to teach it, either in class or in writing. And certainly that's true in my case. All of the major books that I've written first were talked about in courses. The ideas first came out in very nebulous form sometimes in courses. Uh, it's a place where you can explore ideas. I used to try to get students to talk about an issue which I think was fairly important. I said, why are there more great women than great men in the world? You're not allowed to challenge the fact. <laughs> but why is it true? And out of several years of discussion, I think I, we formulated an answer. A woman, when she is born, is ordinarily a girl. And she's told, you are a girl. Because you are a girl, you are unpredictable, flighty, uh, do things for no good reason, all these kinds of things. She then goes to school and says, you are educated. Because you are educated, you are consistent, rational, straightforward. So she goes through life doing things for no good reason and thinking of the reasons and making them, rationalizing them clearly. That produces a person who has a very complicated, subtle value system, very contextual, very rich. A man, when he's born, is usually a boy. And he's told, you are a boy. Because you are a boy, you're consistent, rational, straightforward. Goes to education, said, you are educated because you're educated, you're consistent, rational, straightforward. And goes through life being consistent, rational, and straightforward with two-year-old goals. That was the start of saying, seeing preferences not as given but as developing. 
seen you know, a whole theory of choice which says choice is an arena for constructing preferences, not just uh, acting on them. Early, early at Irvine, I taught a course called Men and Women. This was so early, it was, it was at a time when a man could teach such a course. It was sort of socially allowed to teach such a course. And we were talking about what people's aspirations were and so on and so forth, how they thought of themselves. And um, somehow or other, one of, one of the questions that was asked to one of the students was, uh, well, if you could do whatever you wanted to do right now, what would you do? And she said, I would go to New York. And I, I said, well, I have in my pocket $300. If you'll get on the next plane, I'll pay for it. This is not risk-free. She did. And she came back, actually, too. And it changed her life. It changed the way she thought about herself. It changed the... No she, that's what she says. It gave her a sense that she had some command of her life. Provided she had a sugar daddy, of course. But uh, that's what teaching is all about, I think. Uh, the, uh, I used to ask, why do communication theorists make such lousy conversationalists? I don't know how many conversations you've had with a communication theorist, but believe me, the facts are there. Uh, why? Well, after some discussion, we figured it out. Communication theorists believe that the point to a communication is that you have something in your mind, you encode it into a message, which is then decoded, and the, a good communication is one in which there's an identity between what's in your mind and what is in the receiver's mind. World's worst conversation. In a conversation, you want to say something and it's not quite clear what it means, which somebody interprets in a different way, says something back, and you spiral up into some kind of wonderful place that neither of you thought about. Why is it more enjoyable to be seduced by a poet than an economist? No, don't quarrel with the facts. Lots of evidence for this. An economist thinks that things have an objective function, there's an objective and you pursue it and you measure how effectively you get there. A poet doesn't really understand what's going on in the world or drifts around in the world and doesn't really know he's involved in seduction until it's over. And that's more fun. So one of the things that teaching taught me, of course, was the importance of ambiguity of producing evocative messages, not necessarily clear ones. Then I ended up finally teaching a course on leadership. And I, I experimented a lot in teaching this course. I tried, first of all, to teach using social science and things of that sort. And I continue to use social science, but I gradually realized that there were some fundamental issues in leadership that were basically the issues of life. 
Issues like what justifies great action? Why will you commit yourself to great things? Uh, and that these issues are much better discussed in great literature than they are in social science. So I ended up teaching a course in which the required reading was Othello, uh, George Bernard Shaw's St. Joan, uh, Tolstoy's War and Peace, and Cervantes' Quixote, Don Quixote. Uh, and it, that, the understanding of leadership came out of that teaching. So there are those pleasure, the intellectual pleasures. There are also pleasures of the process. For me, it's very emotional and visceral. It's not the head, it's the heart. Uh, I used, when I taught the leadership course, I would not share it. It was a fairly large course, usually 300 or more. And I would not share it with a teaching assistant, partly because I didn't think they had the preparation, but mostly because I just wouldn't share it. So I taught all the sections. And I taught them all on one day, back to back, all through the day. And Jane would say, when I came home, I was on such a high that she had to calm me down. The, the exhilaration of talking to these students about these issues was an exhilaration that was very hard to capture. I, at the risk of being misunderstood, I think it's similar to sexual pleasure. It has that kind of total grab on the, on the person. Uh, pleasure, you're, you're engaged with lives at a critical time in their life. I had a student come in to me one day and we had a great conversation about existential philosophy. At the end of this conversation, he said, oh, if you like this kind of stuff, you ought to read this fellow Camus. <laughs> Boy, that was wonderful. Because I have hundreds of students who can pronounce the name but have never read him. This guy had read him and really understood and, and he had entered him. As, and so... That's an exciting thing. Uh, I had a very bright student uh, in class who was determined to show me and everyone around how bright he was. And he, you know, he put on these performances, and he was very bright. And finally, I took him aside and said, look, I know you're bright. Everybody else knows you're bright. Why don't you start teaching? Why don't you start helping other people to understand the topic? He turned on a dime. The next class, he became a totally different person, and he became an assistant teacher. And that, and he's now a professor at Oxford. So that's a kind of experience. Um, I, uh, when I was at Irvine, I had a student who came to most of my classes to heckle. She was sort of the resident student radical. She was very smart. And we had, I think, we put on performances that students appreciated and, and learned from. Uh, she was a good Marxist in, in both senses that she was committed and that she actually had read Marx, which was more than most of her colleagues had done. Uh, and I, you know, that whole, that, her contribution to the teaching in my classes was enormous. Uh, 
She came into my office one day, late in, the, or late in my time there, and she said, she was, she was angry, and she said, I'm going to become an economist. And I said, Leslie, I don't understand. She said, somebody in this goddamn movement has to know something. <laughs> wonderful person. I don't know what's happened to her, but it's a wonderful person. I, uh, I used to uh, do a lot of undergraduate advising, and my standard advice to undergraduate women was the best time to have their children was when they were undergraduates. They have flexible schedules, they have a lot of energy, they, you know, by the time the child is grown, they will, by the time they want to start entering the workforce, the child will be grown and can be taken care of, independent of the mother. Uh, it, it was not, I conceded, the world's greatest time to choose a mate, but there are, there are solutions to that problem. Well, I didn't get very many converts, but on two occasions at graduation, Students introduced me to their parents saying, this is the professor who's been trying to get me pregnant all year. <laughs> Wonderful. Twice, or actually in the same week, I got letters from two former students. These were two students, each of whom, they didn't know each other actually, each of whom had failed my course. And each of whom had come up and said, yeah, I failed the course, I don't understand it. Will you teach me? And so we went in, in both cases, we went into a uh, sort of individual study structure and they learned the material and they did fine. These letters were, each of these letters was an invitation to attend a graduation from a medical school. Each of these students had become MDs. That made me feel pretty good. The, uh, then there are the pleasures of the reflected honors of uh, your students. Ed Feigenbaum, not a bad fellow. This year's Nobel laureate, Oliver Williamson, was a student. But one of the best, I had someone came up to me the other day and said, I didn't know that you supervised Gloria Marshall. Now most of you probably don't know Gloria Marshall. Gloria Marshall is the, I don't know what her title is, principal I guess, of the Montessori School in East Palo Alto. She's an absolutely marvelous woman who I think probably has the record for the longest time from entry to PhD. She was a woman who easily could have gotten her PhD faster, but who said, I'm not going to take an easy route. I'm going to learn something, and I'm going to do something that I'll be proud of. And for probably four years, I said, Gloria, you're not going to make it. You're just not going to make it. We have to face up to that. And she said, oh, I'm going to keep at it. And she ultimately completed a dissertation that I still cite in my papers. She learned an awful lot. She, she had no quantitative skills at all when she started. And she has become a major force for good in East Palo Alto. So 
That's the kind of people that give you a sense of goodness. I, uh, you know, mostly you remember, of course, the great academic stars. First class I ever taught had Guido Calabresi in it. Now, some of you don't, I probably know, none of you know who Guido Calabresi is, but Guido Calabresi ultimately became dean of the Yale Law School, was prominently mentioned as a possible Supreme Court justice, ended up as a Court of Appeals justice. Extremely smart fellow in my first class. Uh, <laughs> a little terrifying. The, uh, I had Cory Booker in my class. Cory is now mayor of Newark a very thoughtful, intelligent guy. Um, I had a woman by the name of Karen Anderson. Oh, I used to, uh, in my classes, give what I call automatic A, or instant A's. If you come up with a truly interesting idea, you get an A regardless of anything else in the class. Uh, very few of those were ever awarded, but one was to Karen Anderson, who, in a very large lecture class where I was talking about indifference curves, in the back of the hall, she raised her hand and she said, do you realize that you've just proven that concave women are monogamous? Now you have to understand something about convexity and concavity and functions to understand that, but it was so nice, I said, a. <laughs> uh, that's, those are the nice moments. And the teacher role. Writers are teachers, teachers are teachers. I always said I'm not an admissions officer. Anybody who shows up is eligible for teaching. Um, teaching is, I think, a sort of summer romance. It's temporary intimacy in the service of a long-run development. I wrote a poem about summer romance. It says, regard brief episodes of life as pleasures of an instant, not as preludes to their permanence. And when quick passions dim, let them pass easily out of memory. Moments of joy will come again, or not, but never long enough to fill a life or create a future. And that's a little bit the way I feel about teaching relationships. This is a summer romance. It's not a permanent thing. It's not, it is, but it is a moment of closeness that can contribute to a life. Um, well, I've wandered on much longer than I intended. I apologize, but I cannot end without Reflections on lessons learned. Now, that, if you, uh, the recent book, or the new book that Ed mentions, mostly says how hard it is to run, learn from experience. And it's particularly hard to learn from an experience which is just filled with successes. So you should remember that. But in, I would say that for someone like me, the times have been of decisive importance particularly in my case, the post-war period and the period of student protests. Those really shaped my research, shaped myself, shaped my feelings. 
Second thing is that scholarship is clearly a collective activity, not an individual activity. So the importance of institutions, the importance of GSIA at Carnegie, the importance of Stanford. Uh, third thing is that scholarship and teaching are so intertwined that you can think of yourself as a teacher and the scholarship will come out. Uh, that the generation and engagement of ideas is central to our lives and, I think, deeply erotic in its, its nature. And that the commitments in life are arbitrary, not consequential. Life offers rewards as it comes, not as you choose. Life is made bearable, for the most part, by the beauty that we impose on it. And teaching is a glorious calling. And when I retired at the business school, the business school invited me to speak. I think, I'm not sure they've done this ever again. And what I said, uh, I'll read it. It said, higher education is a vision, not a calculation. It is a commitment, not a choice. Students are not customers, they are acolytes. Teaching is not a job, it is a sacrament. Research is not an investment, it is a testament. In order to sustain the temple of education, we probably need to rescue it from those deans, donors, faculty, and students who respond to incentives and who calculate consequences and restore it to those who respond to senses of themselves and their callings, who support and pursue knowledge and learning because they represent a proper life, who read books not because they are relevant to their jobs, but because they are not, who do research not in order to secure their reputations or improve the world, but in order to honor scholarship, and who are committed to sustaining an institution of learning as an object of beauty and an affirmation of humanity. Uh, shortly after that, the dean called me and said he'd gotten a letter from a donor, a major donor. And the major donor said, you never should have published that. You should have gotten buried it. So I started my career with a complaint from a donor, and I ended it with a complaint from a donor. Thank you. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.